You know, I hate Christians like you guys. Not you. I know. Wow. Don't worry. I'm not saying it to you. Exactly. These are actually uh, some of my favorite words that someone had ever said to me. Um, My father and I were having this discussion many years back. And at one point in the conversation, he said those words to me. He said, you know what? I hate Christians like you. And I kind of smiled, as you kind of awkwardly do when someone reveals that kind of sentence to you. And it was It was an interesting conversation, and I don't say that to disparage him or to say that he dislikes Christians in general or he dislikes me. It's none of that. But the reason I tell you that story is that there was a changing point in my life that caused him to say that. You know, the men in my family are intelligent, we're arrogant, um, we think we know how the world works, we're analytical thinkers, highly skeptical suspicious of religion, don't want anybody meddling with our affairs, atheistic, sometimes agnostic, and pretty much want the world to leave us alone. And I fit squarely in that category until I gave my life to Jesus and a perceived change that even he could see uh, was enacted. And so I I don't remember exactly what him and I were debating about. It wasn't quite an argument. It wasn't quite a debate. It was something in between. And we'd gotten to this point where we had been talking And I said, look, I don't know how that's going to work. I don't know how that's going to happen, you know, but I'm just going to trust God and I'm just going to have faith, which is something when you tell a smart, driven person, you know, you just got to have faith. It sounds like cowardice. It sounds like just the ravings of a religious lunatic. And that's what was coming out of my mouth. And I was, I told him, I just, look, I don't, I don't know. I have faith. God's in control. And then he responded with those words I just told you, I hate Christians like you. And if you were to look from my vantage point, you would have saw a few things. I've seen a few things on his face. You would have saw, um, you would have seen him in shock, in awe, acceptance, that now I was one of those religious nut people. You would have seen on his face that he just knew that that was going to be part of the conversation going forward. You, you could have seen that incredulity that he's like, I can't believe that. But there was a, there was a time that I wasn't that way, but now I was. Now I was a person who said they'd follow Jesus. And I think what was going through his head is like, man, you used to be one of us, Kyle. You used to think about the world objectively. You used to have a worldview that was reasonable and logical. You used to use your mind. And now you're, you're on this different path. And the reason I started out this story this way is that as we start this series, this three-month series, we've been in the Bible for almost a year now. We started about May last year, and we'll go until May this year. We're taking a three-month crash course on Jesus' life, and we're calling it 90, 90 days with Jesus, because there are 90 days between January 1st and the tomb where Jesus is crucified, not crucified, but buried after his crucifixion. 90 days for you to make a decision on whether or not you, not, you want to believe in Jesus, not even whether you want to follow him, but if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. And the reason I start off today's message that way is that because if an arrogant, intelligent, skeptical, atheistic, Um, a skeptical of all religion person like me can choose to follow Jesus. I do think there's hope for just about everybody. You know, miracles do happen. And I also want to tell you that, you know, that's, that's a story from someone coming from no faith to faith, but there's also a bit of a warning. In this series, there are many of you who have had the label of being a Christian, and you are going to be supremely challenged 
by the life of Jesus. You may actually discover during this series, you're actually not a Christian. You may have carried that label for a long time. People may have have told you about that, and you actually aren't. And that's going to make you decide, even alongside an atheist or an agnostic, whether you will choose to be a disciple of Jesus. But today, I want to talk about Jesus as the carpenter's son. Every, every week, we're going to have different questions that we're going to be asking. I'm going to introduce you to this month's question in just a minute. And every week, we're going to have Jesus, a colon, and something about him. Because what I will hope to do over the next 90 days, over the next three months, between now and Easter Sunday, or more specifically now, and the Saturday where their scripture is silent about the activity of the disciples, is for you to make a choice. Because everyone makes one. Everyone makes a choice about Jesus. And maybe for most of us, it's time to make a serious one. And a serious one meaning, I no longer believe in that guy. I don't want what he's offering. I don't believe in who he is. And I'm tired of pretending. That's not a bad step if you have been pretending. Or maybe you're on the opposite of the spectrum. You're like, I'm finally going to be all in. I've kind of put one foot in for a while. I've been lukewarm. I've never actually followed him. I've believed in him. I've liked the stories. I've heard his teachings. And they're interesting. But I've never done the hard sacrificial work of becoming his disciple. I want that for you. I want you to make a decision, a bold one, over the next three months. But my hope is to compel you to the second one, to make a bold decision. But I want to ask some questions along the way to help you make your decision, to look uh, passionately and historically and spiritually at Jesus' life. What we're going to do in the month of January, because each month we're going to have a different uh, question. I want to ask this question in the month of January. What did people say about Jesus? What did his contemporaries say? What did his enemies, what did his friends say? What did the people who wrote about him say? What did the people who came alongside him, what did the people who interacted with him say? What did they say about him? Because there are four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospels, and each of them paint a very similar picture of who who he was. And they also include all sorts of comments about people who were on the periphery, about who he was, what he claimed, what he said, and how he impacted their life. So what did people say about Jesus? But not just 2,000 years ago. Maybe we could put in the presidents, we could say it this way. What do people say about Jesus now? What do they say about him? Is he a good moral teacher? Is he just a raving lunatic? Is he just the figurehead of one of the world's religions like Buddha or like someone else? Is he just a figurehead of one of the major world religions, albeit there's more written about him? Was he just a moral teacher? Was he a person who never claimed to be God? Was he an angel? Was he God incarnate? Who was he? People still have an opinion of who Jesus is today. And maybe to personalize it, because honestly, that's what you're here for. You want to know at the end of the day, how does God or how should God affect your life? So we could ask this question. What do you say about Jesus? Because you say something. You may not realize it. You may not ask this question in quite this way, but you say something. He's your Lord. Maybe he, you think he's a liar. Maybe you just think he is a lunatic. Maybe you just think he was a great moral teacher. Maybe you think he's a character in a book and never even existed. But you have an opinion on Jesus. Everybody does. It may go from he's irrelevant, I don't care, to he is my Lord and my Savior, and I'm doing my best to be his disciple. You're somewhere in there. 
Now, usually when I start off with a series, you know, to kind of put the, the message aside, just to peek behind the curtain of how I write, maybe you don't care about that, but I'm going to tell you anyways, thanks for asking, is that normally when I do a series this big, I want to enter into a series with kind of a softball. I do kind of a little bit less scripture, it's more Jesus-like, because I want to entice people to stay with us through this series. I'm not going to do any of that today. And part of the reason I'm not going to do that is that because Jesus doesn't start his ministry that way. He doesn't start with any softballs. In fact, quite the opposite. He lays down, not a hammer, but an objective at the front of his ministry. He wants everyone to know, day one, what he's about and what he's here to do. Now, the quote I'm about to give you is not from day one, but it's on the front end of his ministry, and it encompasses the rest of what his life would be about and the rest of what the Gospels would be about, arguably. So right before this, in Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at 834 to 35, but Mark chapter 8, verses 33, Jesus says something interesting to his disciples. He says, the son of man, which is his favorite title for himself, we'll look, about, we'll look at that title about a month or so, and he says, I must suffer, I must die, and I must serve mankind, something like that. And his disciples did not like that. In fact, Peter draws him aside and he says, hey, that's not a good plan. Can we come up with a new one? And Peter gets pulled aside by Jesus and says, get behind me, Satan. You have the things of men in mind, not the things of God. And then he calls a crowd. And this is the, the, the first historical incidence in Mark where Jesus is actually the one call, causing a crowd and calling one to himself. Prior to this, Jesus taught in the synagogues. He earned the right to do that because of the way he taught. He also earned that right because he would perform miracles. And some of the rabbis were like, you know what, why don't you teach this one? You just, you just help somebody. Why don't you teach it? And so he was well known in the countryside. And people followed him because he healed people. He provided uh, food and meals to people. He multiplied carbohydrates right in front of people. He was someone that everyone knew and they always followed him. But this is the first instance that he calls the crowd to him because he wants to institute a specific teaching moment. And here's what he says. Whoever wants to be my believer, nope, my follower, nope, my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He pulls no punches. He's like, if you follow me, if you are my disciple, your life will not belong to you anymore. In fact, you have to die to everything in your life. Everything that you think is yours is not. That's why a lot of people didn't sign up at first. They had a table out. They took signups. Only like 12 dudes showed up. They didn't want this because it was wholly different than what they expected of him. He says, whoever wants to follow me and be my disciple must take up their cross daily and follow me. You know, taking up your cross is an example of how to follow him. Now, Jesus meant this both literally and metaphorically. He would literally take up a cross to his death. And we believe that Peter was probably crucified upside down. But during this time, Mark, who was probably helped out by Peter, who followed Jesus to understand all the things that Jesus said and helped him write the story we know as the gospel of Mark, knew that Jesus didn't just mean this symbolically. He meant it literally and metaphorically, but more so than anything else, spiritually. Because in order to follow Jesus, you would have to say something like this. And these are just my words. Here is what we would want Jesus, or here is what Jesus would want us to say about him. Jesus would want us to say this. Jesus is my teacher. 
my master and my Lord. And I willingly believe in and follow him. I am nothing. Nothing. He is everything. I will die a slow death to my will and to my ways every day as I seek his will and his ways. Not very popular. Why can't I get emotional like when I'm by myself? Isn't that great when it happens in front of other people? You know, he says, I am nothing. He is everything. And it doesn't just stop there. I will experience hardship and struggle and loss and persecution and suffering for following him. And I accept this. I cannot truly live without Jesus. And only he can give me life by accepting his gospel. This is what he would probably like us to say about him. Can you see why not a lot of people sign up for this? Like, I kind of like my life the way it is. I kind of like being in charge. But if you are to become his disciple, and then it's a big if, if you are to do this, this is what he's asking of you. This is what he's requiring of you. And for some of you, this is a bold no. You don't want this. And you should know that on the front end before you follow him. So with all that said, Jesus starts off his ministry in that way. And he requires this of his people. He wanted people to know up front what they were signing up. And I so appreciate that about him. He doesn't get in like a salesman a couple years down the road. Hey, by the way, I just want to let you know, um, everything about you is now mine. I'm like, what? He told them up front. And it's because it's recorded history by Mark, who probably got the story from Peter. He wanted the rest of us to know up front. It's, he's everything. You give him everything. So as Jesus was going around, he was performing miracles. He was teaching in the synagogues. Crowds were drawn up to him. He had disciples who thought they knew what they had signed up for. And then the people on the periphery, like you and me, who watched his life. And they had a decision to make based on what he said and what he did. In one instance, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is crossing over to one place. He's leaving one city. He had performed some miracles there. He taught in the synagogue. And now he's going over somewhere else. It says, when Jesus crossed over again by the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. And one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came to Jesus. Now, this, this is important. Because when Jesus starts his ministry, he offends a lot of people. And the only kind of way I can make this applicable to today is that someone would come in here, either while I'm teaching or during uh, the week, and you guys are in small groups, and someone were to come in and say, everything you're doing is wrong. All the ways that you have been taught to worship God and your preaching and your small groups and what you're pointing people to is absolutely wrong. You've missed God. It's like if someone were to come up here and say, hey, Kyle, we, we appreciate you've been teaching a long time, but everything you've been teaching people, you've missed him. It was so offensive to the religious leaders because Jesus is like, you're leading people astray. You're not pointing them to God. He made no friends with a religious leader, which is why it was so impactful when Jairus, a religious synagogue leader who him and his contemporaries probably were not the biggest fans of Jesus, he comes to him and we figure out why he comes to him. He says he fell at his feet and begged him because he has a need. My little daughter is dying. You know, when you are so desperate, you'll go to an enemy. You'll go to anybody who could possibly help you with your problem. 
Jairus and maybe his contemporaries avoided Jesus. They stood in his way. They eventually would want to kill him. But in this particular instance, Jairus had the guts to go to him. So come and lay your hands on her because Jairus, like everybody else, had heard this traveling rabbi, had supernatural powers that couldn't explain it, so that she may get well and live. I'm only asking for the one thing. So Jesus is like, all right, I'll do that for you. So Jesus goes with him and a large crowd, again a crowd, was following and pressing against him. And so Jesus is going, there's people all around. Along the way, there is a woman who desperately, just like Jairus, has a need. It's different. She's been bleeding a long time, and there's nothing that anybody could do. And she touches the hem of Jesus' robe, and instantly he feels power go out from him, and he heals her. And so the, the trip that he was originally on to take, uh, to, to go to Jairus' house to heal this person is interrupted by a crowd pressing in on him. He's delayed, and it's interrupted by this person who wants so desperately for Jesus to heal her. And along the way, they get bad news because Jesus is taking so long. While he was still speaking, while he's talking to this woman, hey, you're, you're, you've been healed, people came from the synagogue leader, Jairus' house, and said, hey, bad news, your daughter died. It took too long. The teacher took too long. I don't know what you guys were doing, but it's too late. Why would you bother the teacher, meaning Jesus, anymore? Just leave aside, your daughter is dead. Come back home and mourn with us. And when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. How do you tell someone that when they've lost someone they love? Hey, don't be afraid, just believe. Believe in what? She's dead. Let me pay my respects. So Jesus goes over to them, to the synagogue leader's house, and it says he didn't let anybody accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. And they came to the leader's house and they saw a great commotion. People are wailing and weeping loudly, which is totally understandable. A small child dies even today. This is going to happen. And maybe Jairus was well-liked. He was a public servant. He had servants in his house. He had people who were close to him. He was probably in the community a lot because he was a synagogue leader. He probably knew most of the community. And so a lot of them probably come to pay their respects and to say, hey, man, we're so, we're so sorry for your loss. And when Jesus gets there, he calmly walks in to a catastrophe. And he went in and he said this, hey, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? Why are you guys a bunch of crybabies? It almost seems insensitive. And then he says this sentence. He says, look, the child is not dead. She's just asleep. And they're like, all right, we may not be doctors, but we can tell when someone's dead. We can tell when a kid is just napping or when they will never wake up again. And what did they do? Oh, thank you so much, teacher. Oh, man, your inspiration is inspiring to all of us. You just gave us all hope. No, they laughed at him. They laughed at him. And he put them all outside. All right, you guys get out. So he took the child's father and mother, Jairus, and the mother who was unnamed, and those who were with him, a few witnesses, and he entered the place where the child was. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum. And then I'm so appreciative of Mark here because he parenthetically tells us what this means because I would have no clue. And he says, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. I'm going to pause here real quick. 
You know, when people claim or do or video something miraculous happening in the world, there's always like some sort of buildup. There's always like a pageantry to it. There's often like a ritual that happens. And Jesus just comes up and says a few words. And he says, ah, I got this death thing beat. He just says a few words. Hey, why don't you just get up? And she's up. No fanfare, just complete command. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were all utterly astounded, all utterly astounded. Then he gave strict orders that no one should know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. I don't know why this last part is in there. I just appreciate it. You know, when you come back from the dead, you're probably a little hungry, right? And the reason I think that's in there, joking aside, is there's a practicality here. He's like, give her some food. Take care of her. Jesus, always the great physician. He doesn't just come in, and he doesn't just say, hey, I healed you, peace out. He's like, feed her, take care of her, be there with her. So all this happens, and part of the reason that I think this is so helpful is that because Jesus' command over not only life and death, but the way he treated in his worldview and his afterlife view and his death view and everything else was the antithesis of what everyone else had at the time. That's why they laughed at him. You know, to summarize what we just talked about in a minute, or we just talked about it over the last couple of minutes, that'll be applicable in probably about five minutes to you, is I think this is Jesus' encouragement. Have faith. Don't lose hope. I will overcome. Have faith in me. Don't lose hope in this world. Doesn't matter what it is, I will overcome. I think it's part of the reason that so many people trust Jesus. Because this world is lacking in hope. It seems like everything else is out to get you, crush you, contain you, hold you down. And there's so few things and people you can actually have faith in. I think Jesus is encouraging us even now. Have faith. Don't lose hope. I will overcome. So after he does all of this stuff, again, he's well-known. He just performed another miracle. And you know what happens when you tell people not to say anything? What do they immediately do? They say stuff. So he tells them not to tell anybody about it. News spreads. And then he goes to the one place that you would think would be a comfort to him. But it's not. I don't know how you are, but when I travel and I go sleep somewhere else, I was like, this is not my bed. <laughs> I can't wait to get home to my valley, to my bed, to my own comforts. Because it's a homecoming. But Jesus' homecoming is very different. See, Mark chapter 6, after he has just healed Jairus' daughter, he goes home, he leaves, his home, he leaves uh, there and comes to his hometown, and his disciples, the people who have said yes to him, have followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Again, the synagogue is pretty much a community center. It would be like us going down to the shops in downtown Carson or maybe in downtown Minden or to go up to South Lake Tahoe and to say, oh, where are people congregating? Where is there stuff to do? Where are people going to be? Synagogue was like that. And so Jesus would go to the synagogue. He would teach. Many people would hear what he was teaching. And the people who heard him were astonished. And they ask some questions. They ask questions that maybe you wouldn't phrase this way, but we'll phrase at the end that you might ask. Here's, here's what they asked. Where did this man get these things? Again, the news preceded him. They heard that he had healed someone. They had heard about his teachings. This wasn't new, especially because it was his hometown. 
News about him must have spread into Nazareth, which is his hometown, and they would have heard about Jesus returning. And so as he's teaching in the synagogue, they ask these questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? We just have never heard him teach like this. And how are these miracles performed by his hands? I mean, they had no box for this. The people had no box for this. I mean, the, the people who were religious leaders would spend most of their life memorizing the entire Torah. Do you and I know 30 verses? Probably not. And if you do, awesome. You're holier than the rest of us. Good job. But they would memorize whole books and they would spend their lives, their life teaching them. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been on your phone and you're just enamored in what you're doing because that's kind of what we do now and something caused you to stop what you were doing and look up to pay attention? It might have been like you're outside and you hear car wheels screech and you're like, this is how I go. Some Mini Cooper's going to plow right into me while I'm eating outside. Or you're at home and, and something, someone cries or something like that. You stop what you're doing and you pay attention. For me, sometimes it's a singing voice. I'll hear someone singing and be like, oh my gosh. This is what the effect that Jesus had on people. When he talked, people just, they stopped what they were doing. And they're like, oh my gosh. When he speaks, it does something to me that I can't even describe. There's a supernatural element that I've never heard from any other person. And so the teachers are like, we don't teach like him. How does he get this wisdom? Who gave it to him? And then finally, because they didn't make a career out of performing miracles, they did not travel the countryside and say, hey, do you have a sick daughter? Let me help. They stayed in their synagogues. They taught the law. That's how they figured they would win people over. And Jesus has a completely different plan. Like, how's he doing this stuff? And then they asked some questions like this. Isn't this, isn't this the carpenter's son of Mary? Like, we know Jesus is from Nazareth. We know his father was probably into carpentry. So he, he, he went down in, in the family trade. Don't we know his mother and sister? And he names them all. James, jo Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. I mean, translate this. We know where he's from. We know what his dad did. We know what he should know. But those two are not connecting with who he is in front of us. I mean, I can appreciate carpentry. I'm not a carpenter. I like work with my hands a little bit. My job is often cerebral and theological, sometimes philosophical. And so I'm often, my nose is in a book or on a computer screen. And every once in a while, I really enjoy working with my hands because it's helpful and freeing. But I wouldn't say that's where I would get wisdom. And so it's, it's, no, it's no wonder that they're like, if he's spending his life in a carpentry shop, how does he teach like this? How does he do it? And they were offended by him because they couldn't do it. They couldn't perform miracles. They couldn't teach. They weren't as wise. They couldn't explain why the crowds had followed him. You know, a, a formative book in my life that helped me come to grips with Jesus as more than a real person is this book right here. It's called More Than a Carpenter. This is an updated version of this very old book. And I was transitioning, didn't know it at the time, transitioning from being an atheist to agnostic and eventually an agnostic to a theist and a theist eventually to a Christian. I know it's, that's a lot of process there. It was annoying, but I read books like this and this one was helpful and informative to me because it helped me deal with my questions about Jesus's humanity. You know, you can't get a job in any university today without recognizing that a first century Jew named Jesus claimed to be God from this little corner of the world. You may not believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, but you can't take 
anyone seriously who doesn't believe he was a real person. I believe he was a real person, but to say that he was the person that the Gospels told me, it's hard. And a few quotes from this book, and I highly recommend you go and get it, are helpful. And let me give you a few of them. You know, Jesus' teachings went beyond mere wisdom. They carried an authority that resonated with prophetic insights. How does he talk the way he does? How does he know the things he does? His words weren't just guidance, but often carried the weight of divine revelation. It's like he was God's mouthpiece speaking to a thirsty world. Here's one more. You know, the evidence of Jesus' divinity lies not only in his words, but in his actions, his life, his teachings, his miracles, and his resurrection collectively. You put all of those pieces of evidence together. They attest to a transcendent nature beyond that of an ordinary man. We could say beyond that of a carpenter's son. There's something about him. We don't have parts of the year dedicated to other people like Christmas and Easter. There's something about him. Now, Jesus overhears all this, He hears the questions. He knows people's thoughts. He hears the murmurs. He's got a crowd around him. Not everyone's on his side, and he addresses their concerns. It's interesting. Jesus said to them, the people who are asking all these questions, you know, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. The only place that he will not get credibility, the only place that he's not recognized are the people who know him and love him the most. It's completely backwards. Among his relatives and in his own household, the people who saw Jesus grow up, the people who knew where he was from, who talked with his mothers and brothers and sisters, they did not believe that he was who he said he was. And this next sentence is kind of fascinating because it says he was not able to do a miracle there. Is that literally true? No, because if you keep reading past the comma, except, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I was like, ah, it sounds like a miracle to me. The purpose is there was a connection between people's belief in him and what they were willing to accept. It wasn't that Jesus was incapable. It's that they didn't want it. They did not want or believe he could do those miracles. So they didn't seek him out. They didn't accept the ones that he did. And they didn't clap for the ones that they saw happen. And he was amazed at their unbelief. You know, there are only two places recorded in the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life, where Jesus is amazed. Only two. And he saw some pretty incredible things. I mean, it's not like he was walking on water. He's like, this is amazing. Like, he didn't do that. There are only two places in Scripture where Jesus is amazed. And both of them have to deal with relief. The first one is here. His first amazement is the lack of their unbelief. Jewish people in a Jewish town with a synagogue, and with people who grew up studying the scriptures, could not accept who he was. The only other time that he is amazed is about profound belief. This other time, he, he interacts with this Roman centurion who is a leader of 100, 100 people. And this Roman centurion comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, I've got someone in my household who is sick and probably going to die. Could you heal him? And Jesus says, I'll be right there. And the guy says, no, I'm a commander. I I command people from afar, using an analogy. He's like, Jesus, if you really have command over life and death and sickness, why don't you just say the word from a distance? And I know that my servant will be well. And Jesus is like, ah, I have not found faith among my own people like you have. And he was amazed. 
amazed. Now, the reason the contrast in that story is so impactful, it took an outside, non-Jewish, Roman citizen, possibly polytheistic, maybe not even monotheistic, to recognize who Jesus was. He saw. And it took Jewish people who studied the scriptures, who had every evidence to understand who Jesus was, completely missed who Jesus was. It just goes to show you, it's not time and what you know. In fact, we could say it this way. There is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and having the courage to follow him. Those are not the same. It would cost Jairus probably a lot he had to tell his contemporary, Jairus, the, the synagogue leader, he would have to tell his contemporaries, I know you guys don't like him. I know he teaches antithetical to what you and I grew up with, but he healed my daughter. I've watched him teach in the synagogue. His command of scripture, it's like anything I've ever seen. He would have to risk his relationships with the people around him to have the courage to follow Jesus. We can say it this way. You know, knowing Jesus well does not produce a disciple. This story tells you that. His mother, his brothers, sisters, his own hometown knew him better than anyone. They saw him play in the streets. They, they heard about the birth narrative. They watched him grow up. They knew he was in a carpenter's son. They probably saw him in the shop. He probably built him a chair. And it's not like one day he was just like, ah, I'm going to do this chair. And then it's like, I hate chairs. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going I'm to be a prophet. That's not how it happened. The people who knew him well didn't want to follow him. Following Jesus faithfully is what creates a disciple. It's not knowledge. They knew about him and didn't want to have anything to do with him. But the people like the centurion and Jairus who had to risk everything and the people still today who faithfully follow him, that's what produces a disciple. But it might come at a cost and it might come at a surprise. You know, we can say it this way. When someone you knew before you chose to follow Jesus, someone knew you before you chose to follow Jesus, they won't recognize you at first when they see you following Jesus. It's part of the reason my dad and I had that conversation. I grew up with him. He raised me. He saw things in me. He saw himself in me. We had discussions. Then all of a sudden, something changed. And at some point, I was a follower of Jesus. And he did not recognize me. And the people around you may not recognize you when you faithfully follow and become a disciple of Jesus, not a believer. You don't have to change anything to believe in anything. In fact, it often doesn't. I know that because scripture said even the demons believe that Jesus is who he said. They didn't change their behavior one bit. It's a disciple that makes the difference. Let's come back to some of these questions and let's put them maybe into today's questions. Maybe these are questions that you ask, and I hope you ask these. These are some of the questions that I asked as well. What did people say about Jesus? And maybe this is just a reworking of the questions that they asked in Scripture. Why is Jesus unique? Who is this man? Where do you get this stuff? We've seen plenty of teachers. We've seen plenty of people who claim to be prophets. We've seen plenty of people, if we, if we were to do this today, who claim to be God. Jesus wasn't the first. He wasn't the last. People continue to to claim this. Wasn't he just a wise teacher? Fair question. Totally fair question. People still recite what he said in a philosophical, moral, ethical, worldview way, but not in a messianic way. 
People still like some of the stuff, the golden rule, the platinum rule, treat the people as you would like to be treated. And Jesus upped that. Treat people better than they deserve to be treated. You don't have to believe he's the Messiah to believe in that. Were the miracles real? Again, fair question. Was there a supernatural element to not only his identity, but to his activity? Did he do the things that scripture said he did? And there's a danger here because this book is written a couple thousand years ago and it seems antiquated and people don't believe or see or experience or seek out the things that he did. Maybe they're just stories. It's a fair question. And wasn't he just a man? You got to deal with this one as well. Now, I hope you ask all these, even if you are a Christian, I hope you ask them. Because if you've never asked these, maybe your faith isn't as genuine as you think. If you've never questioned, and the reason I can say that is his own disciples did that. Peter's like, oh, let's do a different plan than having you get crucified. When Peter was asked if he knew him, he says, no, I don't really know him. They question him. Hey, this is a hard teaching, Jesus. What, can you teach us something different? They did not know how to deal with the identity, personality, activity, divinity, and everything else you'd like to say about who Jesus was. There was no category for it. One more quote from the book. Maybe it's helpful. You know, the significance of Jesus's identity cannot be overstated. It's not merely a matter of historical curiosity, but a fundamental aspect that shapes one's worldview and eternity. Everyone in the world has a worldview. Most of it is narrow. We just think about our life, what we're doing, and if you were to, you know, put it to brass tacks, usually questions that people ask, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Where did I come from? What's the purpose of my life? How do I act? Where am I going? That's where everyone asks. Some version of those questions. Everyone has a worldview. But when you, or if you, decide to not just believe, not just follow, but become a disciple of Jesus, your worldview fundamentally changes. How you view your marriage, your parenting, your job, your spiritual gifts, your finances, your time, your talent, your mind, your energy level, rest, your work, and everything else changes. It involves all of it. It fundamentally changes, or more personally, he fundamentally changes. And not only your worldview, but your eternal view. He fundamentally changes all of them. And all of you have made a decision about Jesus. Some of you just believe. Some of you follow when you can. Some of you are disciples to the very end. And some of you want nothing to do with him. And those are all ways of thinking about him. And my hope during this series or the next three months is to compel you to become his disciple. But it's risky. And it's costly. Now that you're all encouraged, let's get to some next steps. I want to make this very, very practical because a disciple, a relationship with Jesus is measured daily, not weekly. If you just come to church on Sunday and that is your interaction with Jesus, you are not a disciple and neither am I. It's a daily thing. And so how do we do this? I'm going to include some weekly things first and then some daily ones. First is to spend weekly time hearing about Jesus. We hope you come on Sundays and hear uh, the message series. Our, our teachers and our people have put a lot of time and effort into the graphics and the messages and the worship songs and everything because we ultimately want to spend 90 days with Jesus and pointing you to him. Ask someone to come with you. It's so easy. Hey, want to come hear some ginger guy up on stage? I mean, it's an easy invite, right? 
ask someone. It takes like seven or eight invites. People asked me for years, and I was like, stop asking. And one of them had the courage to be like, I'll stop asking if you go. I was like, dang it. And so I did. So just ask. The worst they can say is no, but keep asking. Because introducing them to Jesus will change fundamentally everything about them. Number two, spend daily, or join a group, I'm sorry, join a group and discuss his life together. Join a group and discuss his life together. And then number two, spend daily time learning about Jesus. Start and be disciplined to finish through a reading plan. We, we hope you'll join a group, going back to the last point. Sundays aren't not enough. You need time to be accountable to others, to ask questions, to have prayer for you, to pray for other people. Being a disciple cannot be done in isolation. You need other people. And I don't mean on a Sunday. So I hope you'll join a group. And then this daily one, these next two daily ones, I hope you will be disciplined to start a, a reading plan. If you don't have one, we've got one out there for you. Find one on the Bible app or someone else, but be daily in the Word. And then this third one we talked about um, on December 31st is that this is an easy one to do daily. Not easy because it's hard to do anything daily. Father, if you are willing, and then you fill in this blank, Whatever you want. That's the time to ask. Help my kids behave. I don't know if he's going to answer that one, but you can always try. Father, if you're willing, repair my marriage. Help, me make, help make me a less arrogant person. Keep my hope in you. Give me peace. Whatever that is. Father, if you are willing, whatever it is. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You do this every day. You're orchestrating your life around Jesus' will and not your own. Next week, we're going to talk about this. Jesus, a friend of sinners, another thing he was called. Today we talked about Jesus as the carpenter's son, and I hope I've compelled you that he's more than that. And next week we're going to talk about the association Jesus has with other people. One more thing for you. Next Sunday, we have something called Coffee With Us. If you've never met our staff, our wonderful people, our volunteers on our staff, you've never heard about the history of our church, where we're going, uh, how to use your gifts, all that sort of stuff, we hope you'll register for it. You can just show up, but we'd love to know uh, if you're coming to that. I'll be there talking a little bit about the future of our church. I hope you'll join us. Thank you so much for being here. You are already blessed in Christ. Have a great Sunday.